turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. Today we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, as we continue our study through uh, this book of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of God, beginning in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you that in The Son, Jesus Christ, there is light, and that life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so we come to your word, we ask that you would give us light, the light of Christ, that you would show us more of Christ, and show us more of who you are as God, as you have revealed yourself in your grace and in your love. We pray that Uh, you would overcome the darkness of our sin, of our hearts, and even our understanding, that we might understand your word because we desire to know you and we want to worship and love you. So we ask that you would do these things through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You're probably familiar with the phrase and maybe have said it yourself. After all that I have done for you, this is how you repay me. This is the thanks I get. This is how you treat me after all that I have done for you. We expect in the way that we treat others some reciprocation some thanks or appreciation at least, some return on our investment. If I do things for someone, you expect someone else to reciprocate and also do things for you. Maybe it's most common for parents to say this to children because children often don't really appreciate everything that parents do. And so when children disrespect or disobey and get really angry or, or they say just really mean or cruel things, a parent might respond or at least might think, do you not realize all that I have done for you? No, I don't hate you. No, I love you. I've shown it in my care and love for you. How can you treat me this way? How can you think this way? about me. Or maybe it's even a situation at work where you are 
helping someone, maybe training them, helping them grow in their career, and then they uh, say something like gossiping about you or something that hurts your job, hurts your career, or maybe they just leave you in the lurch and they abandon you and you think to yourself, after all that I did for that person, how could they turn around and treat me that way? There is some sense in which we expect people to treat us rightly when we treat them kindly. Uh, we expect a relationship of, of what we would call a quid pro quo. I did this for you, you should do this for me. And this is how the relationship between God and Israel was. In the Old Covenant, in the covenant that God made at Mount Sinai with Israel, when they became a nation, God said, I have redeemed you. I have called you to myself. I brought you out of Egypt. I, I'm going to take you into the promised land. Now here's how you repay me. You need to listen to me. You need to obey me. And in fact, I'm going to give you books and books through my prophet Moses to tell you all the things that you need to do to thank me, to show your love for me, and to show your obedience. And that was the old covenant with Israel. God rightly had expectations of Israel that if he would love them and he would do all these things for them, if he would give them the promised land, they should reciprocate with obedience. They should at least be thankful. But we know the history of Israel is that that's not what they do. They instead respond with disobedience and rebellion and not being thankful for all that he has done. And that's what we see in this parable. These seven verses are a parable of a vineyard. Or they're a, a love song that turns into a parable. And the parable is about God and his uh, relationship with the nation of Israel. And before we get into the details of the text, I think that it would be good to get the punch of the parable. The, the main point that the, the song or the, the parable is trying to get across. Because it's a lot like if some of you know this story, it's a lot like the parable that Nathan tells David after his behaviors with Bathsheba and Uriah. Uh, Nathan tells David a parable about a rich man and a poor man and a lamb. And, and he tells David this whole story about how the rich man steals the guy's poor little lamb. And David turns around and he says, that's horrible. That man deserves to die. How could, how could that rich man treat the little lamb that way? And then Nathan points at him and says, You are that man. The way that you treated Bathsheba and Uriah is like the man treated the poor man with his lamb. And that convicts King David. And so it's the same with this parable. So I'm going to try to get you to, to see that first at the outset because it, it doesn't come across otherwise as we're going through all the little details. So imagine Isaiah is preaching this song. Maybe he's even singing this song. And so he, he starts and there, there's a crowd out there and he says, the beloved had a vineyard and he planted it on a fertile hill and dug it and cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines and built a watchtower and hewed out a wine vat in it. And so he's singing this song and the crowd would say, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing that someone would do that for a vineyard. And they probably are picking up on the fact that this is God. God did all these wonderful things. Wow, this is great. And then he says, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And the crowd would gasp, what? How could it yield wild grapes? And then 
Isaiah says, now, inhabitants of Judah, judge. Look at this. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done in it? And the crowd would say, no, nothing, nothing. He did everything for his vineyard. And then Isaiah says, and now let me tell you what God's going to do to the vineyard. He's going to break down its walls and trample it down. And the audience now would be shocked. He's going to break it down? You mean he's not just going to abandon it and leave them to themselves? He's actually going to tear it down? That's shocking. He put a lot of money into that vineyard. And so they go from wow to gasping that there were no wild grapes to shock that he's going to tear it down. And then Isaiah gets to verse 7. The vineyard is the house of Israel. I'm talking about you. And then their shock would turn to anger. How dare he call us a vineyard? And then he's just going to destroy us. And he's saying we yield wild grapes. And then they would be outraged. Because Isaiah is saying, I'm talking about you. You think this is a nice little song. You think this is a nice story about a vineyard. But this is meant to pierce you in your heart. And so it is for us today. This is the point that the parable is trying to do for us, is to pierce us in the heart, to realize all that God has done for us and how we ought to repay him. So now let's look more closely at these verses. Part one, we can call, after all that I've done for you. So, verse 1, he starts by saying, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. In verse 1, it's not really clear, although I don't think it matters too much, it's not really clear. Is this Isaiah speaking about his beloved, or is this God speaking in the third person? God is singing about himself, basically. It doesn't really matter, but we see here in verse 1 that the theme of this song or this parable is a vineyard. And it's about a relationship between God and these people. This imagery of a vineyard referring to a relationship is found in Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 15 is one example where they say, catch the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, for the vineyard is in blossom. It's talking about their relationship. Their marriage is like this vineyard. It's this relationship of love. And so they say, catch the foxes, the things that would destroy our relationship. And you also see here that clearly it's described as a love song, and he's talking about the beloved and so this is about a loving relationship between God and his people, Israel. And so in this first part, he begins to talk about everything that he does for his vineyard. Some of you are, are gardeners, and maybe you, you know this experience when you are gardening, that things don't always go right. Things don't always go well. And so when you don't get the crop or when a plant dies, you have to do some process of elimination. You have to figure out what went wrong. Is it the soil? Was it something about the seeds or the plant that I got? Is that the problem? Did I do something wrong to care for it? Did I not water it enough? Was there some disease? Was uh, there some blight that came or some insects that destroyed the plant? 
And so, unless you're one of those people like you have cameras on your plants or something, uh, you have to go through this process of elimination to figure out what went wrong. And so God here is basically going through the list to eliminate everything that could have gone wrong to say, it's not my fault. If there are wild grapes, that's your fault. You're the vine, and it's the fault of the vine to yield wild grape. It's not me. So that's what he's doing. So first, he says, I I planted the vineyard on a very fertile hill. And this shows us that God's work was costly. It was expensive. Um, First of all, the the land itself would have been costly because it was fertile land with good soil. And then it would be costly because he could have chosen to plant all kinds of things on that very fertile hill. If he had chosen wheat, he he could have gotten a huge wheat crop, you would think. And so he's losing out on a bumper crop of wheat by planting a vineyard. And so by planting the vineyard here, he's expecting a huge payoff. Okay, so he plants it on a very fertile hill. And so we know problem number one is eliminated. The problem was not with the soil. Number two, here in verse two, he dug it and he cleared it of stones. So not only does he go through this great expense, now he goes through a whole lot of work. You can try digging acres and acres of a vineyard. You got to dig hole after hole after hole to plant those trellises, uh, uh, to to, to dig those trellises and, and, and put them there to plant the vines. And so he, he digs all of these holes. He clears it of stones. Maybe you, you know that feeling too. Around here, there's lots of rocks in the soil. And Palestine, the land of Palestine, is really rocky. So that's a lot of work to clear the land in Palestine of stones. But God through, goes through all of this. So that eliminates another option. What went wrong? Well, it wasn't that he didn't dig the holes deep enough. It wasn't that there was rocky ground. Nope, he did. He did that. So then, number three, what, what else did he do? Well, he planted it with choice vines. He got the good stuff. He got the right plants. He didn't go to the Walmart garden center and look for the rollback price sign, $1.99, because this plant has been sitting there for months and it's wilting. I'll get that one because it's $1.99. No. He says, I'm going to go to the best nursery around, the most expensive kind, get the best species of vine. That's the one I'm going to plant. So he plants the vine. And so we know the problem wasn't with God choosing the wrong kind of species of vine. That's not why it fails. Now then he goes on. Number four, he builds a watchtower. Now the watchtower would be there for the worker or the owner to stay there, to live there, especially during the harvest time when the, the grapes would be growing because animals might come and they might eat the grapes. Or even people might come and they might steal the grapes. And so he builds a watchtower to protect his vineyard. So what failed with the grapes, with the vine? It wasn't that some animal came, some predator came and ate the grapes. So he does all these things and now, after this, we see his expectation. That's what it means when he's hewing out a wine vat. That itself would also be a lot of work to make a vat out of stone with the tools that existed in 700 BC. So he hews out a wine vat of stone and he's expecting wine. 
vine. So he looked for it to yield grapes. Look for it. That doesn't really get across the the meaning. It's, It's that he's waiting. He's expecting. He's licking his chops. This is gonna be good. If a farmer invests all of his money and all of his time into this one crop, he could either end up in disaster or great prosperity. Like an investor who takes his his investment fund and he puts it all in this one stock because he thinks it's going to be the next Amazon, he could lose all his money or he could become a millionaire or a billionaire. And so it's like the investor looking at the stock market, watching the ticking and the ticking. Oh, it's going up. It's going up. Oh, it went down. That's what this parable is saying. It's like God is waiting for this great yield. This is all that God did for the vineyard. Now, this is summarized then in verses 3 and 4. Verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And he asked them in verse 3, judge between me and my vineyard. In other words, this is obvious, so obvious that everybody can look and everybody can see. You don't have to do some special investigation. This The plain person can notice what I've done and see what more was there to do that I have not done in it. And notice the way that he says it. He uses the word not done. He doesn't say, look at all that I've done. But what have I done? not done to give even more of an emphasis there is nothing left undone for the vineyard so before we get to how Israel repays God let's think about how this applies to Israel and to us after all that God has done For Israel, for ancient Israel, we could say this about these people. What has God not done for them? Paul in Romans chapter 9 verse 4 says, They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. This is what the parable is trying to say. God gave them everything. What has he not done for them? He even gave them, according to their race, the Messiah. What excuse do they have to yield wild grapes? What excuse does Israel have to reject God and love God? As we see that there are many Jews who do reject God, we can say that God is not to blame. After all that he has done for them and all that he's given them, they should have followed and believed in his Messiah, Jesus Christ, God blessed forever. So that applies to the ancient people of Israel. We can also think about it personally for ourselves. Think about it in this way. What has God not done for you? What has God not done for you? Some of you will say, well, glad you asked. I got a long list. I can tell you all the things God has not done for me. Yeah, I know he's, he's given me some things, but there are a lot of things God hasn't done for me. But this parable, this verse, verse 4, is trying to get you to ask, what has God not done for you? This is where the issue of contentment comes in our lives. 
Contentment or discontentment comes when we always think the grass is greener on the other side. Discontentment comes when we have our wish list of things we want God to do. Maybe literally you have an Amazon wish list and you like to look at that wish list and put things on the wish list and and if you're the type of person that is always looking at your wish list and thinking about what else you want and now Christmas is coming and and people are thinking about what they want you're not going to be a content person discontent people always think about what they don't have and what they want to have but to learn the secret of being content Paul says is to know as he says in Philippians 4 my God will supply your every need and so if I don't have it God doesn't think I need it because if I have it God promise, uh, promises to supply my every need. If I needed it, God would supply it for me. This is how we learn to be content. Think about what God has not done for you. What what else has he not done for you? In the sense that you ought to think about how he has supplied everything. Everything that you need. You can also think about this in a spiritual sense, not just physical and provisions for us. But think of how, how, what God has not done for you spiritually. How God has provided for you. Uh, the, the Puritans had a, a phrase that they would call sinning against light. Sinning against light. And what that means is that there's a sense in which the more light we have, the more privileges, revelation, and blessings that we have, the more we are responsible to respond to God with love and service. And so when God gives us all of these things, all of this light, it's in a sense a greater offense that we would sin against that light. So think about all the light that we have spiritually as 21st century Americans. We have everything that Paul said about Israel, except that Christ was not descended from our race, but we have the adoption and the covenants and the promises and the patriarchs. We have all of the Old Testament that Israel had, and we have the New Testament, We have the writings of the Gospels about Christ. We have the teaching of the apostles. And then we're even blessed to have teachers from the history of the church that we can learn from. Augustine, Athanasius, Calvin, Luther, Sproul, Packer. And we could go on and on. We have the word of God. Remember when we celebrate the Reformation, we're celebrating the fact that we have the word of God in our own language when so many people were desperate to have the word of God in their language so that they could understand it. And we have that. We have personal copies of the Bible sitting in our houses, five to ten of them probably. We have the, the luxury of arguing with each other about which English translation is the best one. When you know there are many cultures, even today, first of all, that don't have any translation. And also, a lot of them just have one. They're not arguing about which standard version is the best. They're just glad they have one. You have the freedom to worship here today that many people don't have. This is God digging and clearing stones and building watchtowers so that you can grow spiritually, so that you can know God and love him. Be thankful. What has God not done for you so that you might know him? 
and you can grow spiritually. And for someone here who may not be following Christ, think about what God has done for you. He gives you life. He is patient towards you. Second Peter 3 says God is patient. He hasn't come and destroyed the world yet because he's waiting for people to repent. You. God is waiting for you to repent. He's being patient with you over and over and again, giving you another day that you don't deserve because he wants you to repent. For some of you, maybe God put you in a Christian family so that you could learn about Christ and learn the gospel. God put you in this nation. You could be in India where there are crowds and crowds of Hindu people and that's how you could have grown up seeing Hindu temples everywhere, but he put you in a nation where you could see Albany Baptist on a corner and you could walk in and hear the word of God. You don't even have to walk in to hear the word of God. He gave you the ability to even watch it on the internet. He puts you in a nation where just going to a hotel room, you can find a Bible in the drawer. God is doing all of this unbeliever, so that you might find him, so that you might know him. And so he calls and he offers to you the gospel, and he says that you ought to come to him and find salvation in Jesus Christ. This is what God has done for us. Now let's look at the second part. How do we repay him? After all that I've done for you, this is how you repay me. So at the end of verse 2, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then at the end of verse 4, he puts it as a question. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? The question, why? This doesn't make sense. This is not natural. It was the choicest vine. I did everything for it. This is like a miracle, except it's, it's a miracle gone bad. It's the opposite miracle. How could this somehow miraculously yield wild grapes? How could this be the result? So, how is Israel yielding wild grapes? What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means it's bad fruit. Uh, it's sin. Uh, we see in verse 7, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. I have to pause here in verse 7 and just point out that, that one of the things that makes Isaiah great is that he is a great poet. Uh, he is a genius inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't always come across in English. But even in my Bible, there are little footnotes there that explain this. That Isaiah is using words that sound the same and, and it shows his poetry. And so I'll tell you the word in Hebrew. He looked for justice, mishpat, but behold, bloodshed, mishpach, for righteousness, for tzedakah, but behold, an outcry, tzedakah. And so Isaiah is using this great language to, to say that the fruit of Israel is immorality, murder, bloodshed. This is how they repay him, with sin. The other reason that the wild grapes are bad is Israel's hypocrisy. Israel's hypocrisy. We saw that in chapter 1. They're coming to the temple, they're doing all the worship, but their lives are full of immorality, and so they're hypocrites. So 
you know, he says, I looked for it to yield grapes. He doesn't say it yielded strawberries. It yielded wild grapes. You can imagine the owner riding up to the vineyard, looking at the grapes on the vine and, and seeing, oh, look, I have this huge crop. Grapes have grown. I'm so excited. And then he gets up there, he grabs one off the vine, sticks it in his mouth. He's like, ah, disgusting. And he expected it to be a good grape, and it tastes totally different. I bet you've had that experience with food. You expect it to taste like something. And it doesn't taste like that. And that's what makes it even worse, is that you are expecting something different. And this is the other problem with Israel, is their hypocrisy. I was expecting justice, and I got bloodshed. So this is how Israel repays them. Well, the height of Israel's response is found actually in Mark Chapter 12, and we want, I want to turn there and look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. And here, Jesus is telling a parable about a vineyard, but instead of Israel being the vineyard here, Israel is the tenants of the vineyard. And the different servants that are sent are prophets, like Isaiah. So let's read what Jesus says in Mark 12, beginning in verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So, to use the words of Isaiah 5, the owner of the vineyard, even sends his beloved son. We can ask that question, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? I even sent my son. I sent my son to Israel. As Paul says, they even have the Christ, the Messiah, according to the flesh. I even gave them Christ. But how did they repay God for sending his son? They killed him. They killed him because they wanted control of the vineyard themselves. And so we can go back to Isaiah 5 and read verse 7. And we can see even in here the treatment of the son of God. God sent his son to Israel that they would learn justice, but instead there was bloodshed. They killed the son. They nailed him to the cross. They shed his blood. God sent his son that they might learn righteousness in Israel, that the son might even live a perfectly righteous life. But what did they get instead? They respond with an outcry, an outcry 
Crucify him. Crucify him, the Messiah. Crucify the righteous one. Let his blood be on us and on our children. We don't want justice. We want bloodshed. And so they respond by crucifying Jesus Christ, the Son of God, after all that he had done for them. This is how the nation of Israel responded. What about us? How do you respond to all that God has done for you? How do you respond to all that God has done spiritually for you? With all the light that you have, are you responding by bearing good fruits? Are you responding with the wild grapes of sin, immorality, and evil, and hypocrisy? With all that God has done for us, our response should be to give him everything. To give him all of our life. As one of our hymns says, as if Jesus is speaking, I gave my all for thee. What hast thou done for me? You should do everything for me because I do all for you. This is why to be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to take up your cross and deny yourself. We, we don't want the bar of what it looks like to be a Christian, to be someone who goes to church for one hour a week and then the rest of their life is just like everyone else's. No, because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I must give him all of my life. And so whatever he calls me to do, I must do. And for those of you who are not following Christ and trusting in him, God has even sent his son. Are you going to respond by continuing to live for yourself? God has been patient towards you and he offers you the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. Will you still choose your sin? Or will you choose to give up your sin in repentance and trust in Jesus Christ fully to follow him and find eternal life? How else could you repay a God who is so patient towards you? Who even sent his son to die? How else could you respond but to Love the Son of God and give your life to him. Well, the last part of this passage is God having enough with Israel. After all that I've done for you, this is how you repay me. I've had enough of you. So, verses 5 and 6, let's read them. Now I will tell you, what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. God has had enough with Israel. After all that he's done for them, this is how they treat him. And so he says he's going to destroy them. And notice his destruction is not passive. It's not like he abandons a house and as the house is left there sitting, it starts to fall apart and vines start to crawl over it. No, God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. See how many times he says that? God tears down the walls and makes it a waste. God is the one commanding the clouds to not rain on it. God is bringing his curse on Israel. We have words coming from Genesis 3 with the thorns. Just like the thorns would grow up after Adam and Eve's sin because of the curse of sin. God's going to cause thorns to grow up in the promised land of Israel. They'll be under the curse. God's going to send the curse that he promised at, in the old covenant. That there would be no rain 
for Israel if they disobeyed. And so God himself will command the clouds, don't rain on that land. You can rain all around the perimeter for the other people, but do not rain on the cursed people who have rejected me. God sends his curse. We have words here that remind us of war, breaking down the wall and being trampled down. And so Israel, because they rejected God, they went into exile through Assyria, through Babylon. And then later, they kill the son. They reject the Messiah. And so once again, the armies of Rome, they come in and they trample down the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. As Jesus said in the parable, that the vineyard will be taken away from you, Israel, and it will be given to others. The gospel is going to go to the Gentiles and not the Jews because the Jews killed the Messiah. Their judgment is come. The city is destroyed. Their temple is destroyed. This is God's active judgment. Now that's what happened to the nation of Israel, but there are still ways that it applies to us today. This applies to the unbeliever. This is a reminder to the unbeliever that if you continue to reject God and reject the son that he has sent, you will face the active judgment of God. Hell is not a place absent of God. God is everywhere, including in hell. But in hell, God will be there to actively bring his curse, to command suffering, to command his judgment, to be the one actively bringing about the curse of God. You don't want to reject the Son of God. And then for us who are followers of Christ, here is where we need to remember the difference between Israel and the church. The difference between an old covenant and a new covenant. Israel's covenant was conditional. It depended on their obedience. And so God has every right to say, I've had enough of you. You are not my people because you have rejected Christ. But that's not the case in the new covenant. The Christian will never hear God say, I've had enough of you. In fact, it's probably us who will say, God, after all that I've done for you, after all that you've done for me, this is how I repay you. Christian, don't you feel that way? God has done great things for you. And yet you sin over and over again. God has done great things for you and you're so ungrateful. God has done great things for you. And you're so selfish. Always thinking about yourself. Giving little thought to the God in whom you live and move and have your being. To the God who is full of grace towards you. And you think, maybe God's had enough of me. Why should I come? Why should I come again and pray again? Why should I go worship him? And God says in the new covenant to those who are in Christ, I haven't had enough of you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I want you to come. I want you to come regularly, all the time. I want you to come with boldness. And you know how I know that? It's because I sent my son, my son, who even you killed, in a sense. Even you, who, 
whose record of debt was nailed to the cross when, when he was nailed to the cross. That's why I sent him. So even as you were rejecting my son, I was displaying him to be crucified for your sins, for your sins, for any one of you who trusts and relies upon my son. And so to the Christian, God doesn't say, after all that I've done for you, this is how you repay me. Well, I've had enough of you. No, he says, I forgive you. I forgive you for the ways that you repay me wrongly. Not enough. You don't give me enough thanks, but I forgive you. Because you are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord our God, we who are in Christ wish that we had the words and the ability to give you thanks and to repay you according to what you deserve. We thank you for your forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We thank you that even our weakest efforts to worship you and please you are covered by his blood. We thank you for the great privileges that we have to be adopted into your family and that you will never disown us. You will never cast us away. We will never be under your eternal, eternal curse because Christ has become a curse for us. Well, Lord, we pray that each one of us would put our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins to be adopted into your family. That we would know the blessing that you will never leave us or forsake us. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.